The last several weeks, uh, we've been looking into the stories of people in the Bible whose lives made a really tremendous impact, and a powerful impact, but for whatever reason, their names are not recorded in the Scripture. And we're just three weeks in, and this is what we've learned so far. Nameless doesn't mean insignificant. In the beginning of the series, I ask you to send me the names of people or the references in the Bible of the nameless people in Scripture that have inspired you. And you sent us tons of emails, a host of suggestions. Matter of fact, if I preach all of those names, we'll be here till Christmas Eve preaching all the things you suggested. So we're not going to be able to do that. But so many of you sent me this particular woman's story that I want to drill down into it enough that it may take us two weeks to get through it. We'll just see how far we get. It's the story of the woman at the well, and she's found in John's gospel, the fourth chapter, and I want to begin reading there in the fourth verse. Here's what the scripture says. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Okay, he here is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. That doesn't mean that uh, he geographically had to go through Samaria. The Jews didn't like Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and they avoided each other. And the Jews took the long route around Samaria every day, not to have to go to Samaria, So Jesus didn't geographically have to go. There was something within him compelling him. It was love compelling him, his love for these people and love for the woman that he was about to interact with in this passage. So because of love, he had to go to Samaria. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the parenthetical notes here are not mine. They're in the scripture, in the text. Verse nine, the the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, 
the one speaking to you, I am he. If you've been around North Place for any length of time at all, you've heard us use this phrase, just one more changed life. For us, it's all about changed lives. And when I say changed lives, I'm not just talking about saying a prayer and becoming religious. I'm talking about pervasive change, holistic change, total transformation of who you are as a person because that's what Jesus does. He totally changes and transforms your life. Listen, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is not just the minimum Christian doctrine you have to believe to go to heaven when you die. The gospel is the power to totally transform your life now, thoroughly, radically, and completely. And that's what this woman's story is about, pervasive change and the total transformation of her life. Now, there are two ways people normally think about life change. The old-fashioned way is where change is all about willpower. You use willpower and discipline and determination to overcome and to do what's right. So in your spiritual life, in your health journey, in your finances or your relationship, if you do it the old-fashioned way, change is about you mustering up enough willpower to change. Now, the modern approach to change is almost the exact opposite of that. The modern way of change says you look into your emotions and you see which one of those emotions are the strongest, and then you express those desires and become your authentic self. When somebody's writing about change or they're teaching or talking about change, usually they're going to talk about it from one of those two perspectives. But the change the gospel brings into our lives is not through the willpower of the old-fashioned way or the emotion of the modern way. And in this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, we get to see exactly how the gospel changes our life. The first thing we see is the breadth of gospel change, that it's for everybody. It's interesting for me that the first three nameless people we've looked at in this series, every one of them drive this principle home, that no one culture or one group of people has a privilege to the gospel more than any others. The gospel doesn't belong to anybody. It belongs to everybody. It's for everybody. I mean, look at the barriers that Jesus had to cross to reach this woman. First, there was the racial barrier. It's not news to you that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. And second was the social barrier. This was an ancient patriarchal society. Men in this society did not speak to women in public that they didn't know, ever. It just didn't happen. Third was the moral barrier. This lady's drawing water at noon by herself for a reason. Because she's a social outcast due to her morality or lack of it. Women typically came to the well early in the morning in the cool of the day before all the chores and this gathering at the well was kind of like at work, gathering at the water cooler. This was a social hangout where women got to connect with each other but this woman purposefully avoided the morning and all the other women because of her shame. She was a social outcast but Jesus comes to her and he crosses all those barriers, the racial barrier, the gender barrier, the social barrier, and the moral barrier, and he initiates a conversation with this lady, and she's completely, totally, utterly shocked that this Jewish man's talking to her. Verse 9, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? So why does Jesus challenge the cultural norms and cross all of those barriers? Because the gospel is for everybody. Notice the language that Jesus uses. 
In verse 10, he calls the gospel the gift of God. The gospel's a gift. It's not a wage you earn if you work hard enough. It's not a prize that you win if you're lucky enough. The life-changing power of Jesus Christ is a gift. And let me tell you why that's important. If the gospel was something you earned, certain people would have more privilege to it than others. They're self-starters who have more discipline. They have more willpower. They have more self-control. And so if it was something that you earned, those people would have greater access to a life-changing relationship with God than other people. But it's not a wage that you earn. It's not a prize that the lucky wins. It's not a reward that you wind up getting. The grace of God is a gift and it's available to everybody. There are no ladders where the people up here have more access to God than the people down here. With the gospel, there is no racial hierarchy, no social hierarchy, no economic hierarchy, no gender or religious hierarchy. As a matter of fact, over and over again in the scripture, the people down here on the ladder seem to be more open to the grace of God than anybody. Why? Because the life-changing power of Jesus is a gift, and the only reason you wouldn't accept a gift is due to your pride. The higher you are on the ladder, the more likely it is your pride will tell you that you don't need grace. But Jesus shows us in this conversation that there is no hierarchy, there is no ladder, there are no privileged few, that grace for life change is available to whosoever will, to anybody and everybody who is willing to drink from this fountain of living water. Through this woman's story, you see the breadth of gospel change, but secondly, you see the power of gospel change. It has the power to fulfill our deepest desires. And notice the metaphor Jesus uses for the gospel here, the hope that is found in him. He calls it living water. It's a powerful description of, of, of the life that he gives us because our bodies are about 50% water, which means we need and crave water more than any one single substance on the, on the planet. And that's especially true in an arid, dry, Middle Eastern climate that they were in. When you, when you need a drink, you get thirsty. And if you don't get water, you wind up getting uncomfortable. And if you go long enough without water, you will become painfully dehydrated. And if you have ever been in a situation where you have been extremely hot and thirsty, maybe even dehydrated, there is nothing sweeter than a cold drink of water. It satisfies, it strengthens, and it's almost sweet to your dry, parched mouth. And in this woman's case, the water in that well was central to her people's survival. But Jesus comes along and offers her something better than the water in Jacob's well. He's saying to her, I've got something spiritually for your soul that your soul needs more than your body needs water. And it will be sweeter to your soul than cold water to your dry, parched mouth. And this is why grace has the power to change us more than our willpower and more than our emotions because grace is sweet tasting to our dry, thirsty souls. Through grace, we experience the love of Jesus, we experience the presence of Jesus, we experience the pardon of Jesus, and we experience friendship with Jesus all through grace. Grace changes us because it's so sweet. If you try to change the old-fashioned way, the willpower way, you'll find a technique. You'll try to discipline yourself into it, will yourself into it, because you ought to. But when grace comes into your life, it's sweet, and you want more and more of it, and you start changing because you want to. Not ought to, but want to. You see, grace is different than law. 
You obey the law because the law demands it. You have to. You walk in grace because you want more of it. You want to. Here's a different way of saying it. You obey the lawgiver because you have to. You obey the grace giver because you want to. Grace is like living water to a dry, thirsty soul. I mean, what person dying of thirst? Just imagine somebody in a desert that's about to die of thirst and they come up on a fresh stream of water coming up out of that arid country. It's pure, clean, and cold. What person in that situation is going to take one drink and stop? Nobody. They won't be able to get enough because it is sweet and it is satisfying and they keep going back for more. It is what they need. It is what their soul is craving. And that is how grace changes us. It grows in us and we keep going back for more and it sweeps through our life and it changes us because we want it. Law, techniques, and willpower are in our lives to clamp down on the deepest desires of our heart to control them. But grace, the living water, comes into your life to fulfill the deepest desires of your heart. It gives you the love and the affirmation and the pardon and the presence and the friendship with God that we so desperately need and crave. This is why the gospel is so powerful because it fulfills our deepest desires. Third, this woman's story shows us the process of gospel change. It's instantaneous and progressive at the same time. And here's what I mean when I say instantaneous. The moment you surrender your life to Jesus, you will never be more or less righteous in the eyes of God than you are in that moment. When Jesus becomes your Lord, when you give him your life, he robes you in his righteousness and the Father sees you through the righteousness of Christ. Here's how Paul wrote it, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The minute you surrender your life to Jesus, you become the righteousness of God. It happens instantaneously, but... The life change, the transformation that the gospel will bring into our life after that decision is a gradual, progressive process. And it shows us how incredibly patient God is with us before we make a decision to follow Christ and after we've become a believer and made a decision to follow Christ. I want you to see in this story how this woman keeps trying to change the subject. And and every time God, Jesus, patiently works with her. In verse 15, she said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. She doesn't really know what Jesus is offering. She doesn't know if he's a traveling salesman that has some new concoction. Although all, all that she knows is what he's offering might be useful because she didn't want to have to keep dodging the other women, dealing with her shame and going through the daily chore of coming there to draw water. So whatever it is he's offering, she says, give it to me. And in verse 16, he immediately replies, okay, go call your husband and come back. Now, it seems like he's changing the subject. He isn't changing the subject, and we'll see in just a minute. He's getting right to the heart of the issue, what this woman's heart has been craving. He goes there right away, but she doesn't want to go there. She replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said, I know, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. Now, you have to understand how utterly shocking this woman's situation would have been in her day. Her situation isn't all that unusual or odd to 21st century Americans, but for her day, this woman was scandalous. The only way it was socially acceptable for an adult woman in her culture to not have a husband was to be a widow. And secondly, being divorced five times and now having a live-in boyfriend was more egregious in her culture than it would have been in your great-grandparents' culture. 
Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the issue when he says, go get your husband and come back. He's trying to address the place that she's put her trust and her hope in, and he's trying to offer her a hope and a life change that will meet the deepest needs of her heart, but she doesn't want to go there. She just says, I don't have a husband. And when he supernaturally reveals to her that he knows everything there is to know about her, she doesn't deny it. She simply acknowledges that he must be a prophet, and then she again tries to change the subject. She says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You know, you want to talk about me, let's talk about theology. I don't want to talk about me, let's talk about theology. Because the place of worship was a big political argument in that day, it was a theological argument, and Jesus keeps trying to deal with her heart, and she's like, let's let's talk about what's in the headlines of the news, let's not talk about me, let's talk about the proper place of worship. She keeps deflecting. She keeps changing the subject, but Jesus keeps bringing the conversation back to the issues of her heart until he gets all the way to the end of the conversation and she says, well, one day the Messiah is gonna come and explain it all to us. And he says, ma'am, I the one speaking, I am he. I am the Messiah and I am here. I am the one you crave. I am the one that your heart is running toward. I am what you long for and what you're searching for. You see in her story how God is so patient with us. We run and deflect and distract and change the subject, but he graciously keeps answering our objections, waiting out our distractions and pursuing us in our running. Coming to faith in Jesus is a process. He's working sovereignly through grace in our life to even bring us to a place of decision. But after we make the decision to follow him, the life-changing promise of the gospel that is changing us, that too is a process after we believe. He's patient with us before we believe and patient with us after we believe. The woman at the well was not yet a believer when she started the conversation with Jesus. And you see God's patience in confronting her and dealing with her. But the psalmist, who is a believer, in Psalm 73, describes how patient God had been with him as a believer. He said this, verse 21, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. The psalmist says, you know, I, I kind of been a jerk lately, foolish and ignorant, almost like an animal, but you know what? You never left me. You never quit holding my hand. When I tried to pull my hand out, you squeezed to hold my hand. I belong to you. You guided me when I didn't even acknowledge your presence in my life. You have been patient with me. You see, gospel change is a process. It's not mechanical. It's an organic type of change. If if I wanted to grow a pile of concrete blocks, I I could grow it pretty quick. I'd call an order and a truck would deliver and get some help here. And as fast as we could stack the blocks, we could grow a pile of blocks because it is mechanical growth. It's fixed. It's defined. You have control over it and it can happen fast. But how fast can you grow an oak tree? It takes a long time because it's organic growth. An oak tree is alive. And it's complex, and its growth is dependent on a host of different variables. Gospel change is organic like that. It is gradual growth. It is complex because we are complex. And when we finally see 
how patient God was with us, leading us to the point of decision, and how patient God has been with us since that point of decision, it would fill our hearts with gratitude if we fully understood the patience of God toward us. So we've seen the breadth of gospel change, the power of gospel change, the process of gospel change, but look at the depth of gospel change. It, the gospel is what will satisfy you. It is what our hearts really long for. When she told Jesus she wanted to try some of the living water he offered and he said, go get your husband, Jesus wasn't being rude. He wasn't trying to change the subject. He was going to the deep places of this woman's heart. She thinks he's offering her physical water, but he's offering her the very thing she really longs for, total soul satisfaction. But she had looking for the satisfaction of her soul and the longing of her heart to be fulfilled through romantic relationships with men. And it had obviously left her wanting, unfulfilled, and thirsty. She had husband after husband and now a live-in boyfriend. And Jesus is saying to her, you'll never find what you're looking for in men or any other created thing. No human relationship, no worldly object, no career, money, or accomplishment. They will always leave you thirsty. Whoever drinks from these wells will always thirst again. You see, if you get your soul satisfaction from your sexuality and your beauty, you will always be plagued with a deep sense of insecurity because you'll never know if you measure up or not. And the one thing you can be sure of is that both your sexuality and your beauty will fade with time and age. So why not build your life on something that's going to last? If you seek soul satisfaction through power and influence, you will always live in the fear that you don't have enough power and influence and your whole life will be one power grab trying to get more power and more influence to address and numb that fear in the back of your mind. If you seek soul satisfaction through your intellect where you always have to appear to be the smartest person in the room, you'll end up being driven by fear of not having the answer and be, being made to feel stupid and being exposed as a fraud. If you find your soul satisfaction in money and possessions, you'll become a slave to the very thing you thought you couldn't live without. In other words... If anything other than God takes control of your life, if you offer your life and your loyalty, your worship, in other words, you make something else your Lord, you're never going to call it that, but if you make something else your Lord, becomes your master because you've given your life to it, it will abuse you, it will eat you alive, and it will never satisfy the deep longing of your heart because whosoever drinketh of these waters will thirst again. So Jesus isn't changing the subject when he said, go get your husband and come back. He's trying to show her why she keeps coming back to the same broken well of romantic relationships and over and over again is still unfulfilled and thirsty and left wanting. So if you find yourself, you're drinking from wells that are not satisfying you, how do you change? Well, the old-fashioned way to change is to say you just will yourself into becoming a new person. You just try harder. You shame yourself into change. And we've all tried this. We've done this. And it lasts for a while. But eventually our willpower erodes. It runs out and we default back to our old selves. You will never know lasting change until your heart is totally transformed. 
The modern way of change is that you tap into your emotions and you follow your passions in order to change. And here's the problem. When people tap into their emotions, they think they're looking into their heart, but the Bible says our heart and our emotions are two different things. The woman was following her emotions, but her emotions were deceived and they left her empty and broken. And we all know this. Our emotions can't always be trusted. We need something deeper than our willpower and we need something deeper than our emotions. We need something that will change what our heart places its hope in. We need something that will change what our heart places its trust in. We need something that will change what our heart loves the most. And Jesus says to this woman and he says to us, I am the only fountain that will satisfy you. I am the only Lord and master that will not abuse you. You don't earn my love. My grace is not a prize that you have to be lucky enough to win. I don't offer my favor to the privileged few. It's a gift and I give it to you. Will you come and drink from this fountain of living water? I wanna change your life. I wanna satisfy and fulfill your heart. Now, you can't miss this one little nugget. In her final attempt at changing the subject, she starts bringing up theology and politics. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to go there. And Jesus replies, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, when he says a time is coming, the Greek word for time there literally is translated hour. An hour is coming. And when you read the gospel of John, you often see where Jesus says, when my hour has come. When Jesus refers to his hour in the gospel of John, he's always talking about the cross. That is his hour in the gospel of John. So he's saying to this woman, something is about to happen that is going to make all temples obsolete. Because at the cross, he will become the temple. He will become the ultimate bridge between God and man. At the cross, he will become the ultimate sacrifice. At the cross, he will become the ultimate high priest. So reflect back to Jesus on the cross. Remember what, what he said. What, what are some of the things he said while he was on the cross? He said very few things. But of those few but powerful words Jesus uttered from the cross, remember these. John 19, 28, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, sure, he was physically exhausted and physically thirsty, but so much more is going on here when Jesus said, I thirst. This is how he changes us. Do you realize that when Jesus went to the cross, he went there to accept the brunt of the wrath of God for my sin and for your sin. That, he took it upon himself. That's why he went to the cross. And the prophet Nahum gives a vivid description of the wrath of God for sin in Nahum 1.6. Listen to this. He says, who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Nahum describes God's wrath as the fury and the heat of 10,000 suns. And here's Jesus on the cross in our place as our substitute absorbing the fury of God's wrath for our sin on our behalf. He was cut off from all joy, from all source of life, 
He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was feeling the weight of the world's sin and the agony of unquenched thirst. And he cried out, I'm thirsty. Why? Because he had to be cast out in order for us to be brought in. And because he allowed himself to feel the unquenched thirst of the wrath of God, he subjected himself to that. Now he is able to offer us the water of life and give us something to drink where we never thirst again. And when you finally get a drink from that fountain, and you rest in the security of God's love and presence and pardon and his friendship, then men will just be men and women will just be women and money will just be money and careers will just be careers. Good things, but they won't control you because they won't be your source of comfort and security and approval. He will satisfy the longing of your heart. And he is the only thing, the only well you can drink from and never thirst again. In 1940, a young man named Langdon Gilkey graduated from Harvard, went to China, and became a college professor at a university in China in 1940. While he was there, the Japanese invaded or occupied part of China and they took Westerners, Europeans, the British, Americans, put them in a concentration camp. There were about 2,000 people in the, an area about the size of a city block crammed into this. And it was uh, Gilkey later goes on to write a book about his experience at the camp called the Shangtung Compound. He went into this as a very secular man. He was not a Christian. Uh, he didn't have, you know, he didn't, he didn't hate religion or religious people. He just felt like it was unnecessary. I mean, he felt like that man was good enough on his own without God or religion to build a good life and to build a good society. And in his book, he describes the conditions of the concentration camp. They were packed, unsanitary, horrible, and confining. And he references his naive secularism. He went into that as a secular man thinking that people can make the best of this situation because if left to themselves, people are rational. There's a sense of fairness. And even though they were in a horrible place, they could pull together and create a decent environment for themselves in that really bad situation. But the whole book, the purpose of the book is to address how disillusioned he was as a secular individual because when he saw humanity at its worst, it shattered his secular worldview. They were in that environment for two or three years and he saw the worst of humanity. He said everybody was selfish. Nobody shared. People were cruel. They would lie, cheat, and steal because they were just trying to survive. He said it was true of the educated and the uneducated. It was true of the religious and the irreligious. Matter of fact, when they brought all the Westerners into the camp, a lot of the people they brought in the camp were missionaries that had moved to China to be missionaries. And he said the religious people, the missionaries were the worst because they did everything everybody else did, but they justified it with their religious language and they made it sound better than what it really was. It made them worse. And Gilkey says he was disillusioned in that moment because if human reason wasn't enough and science and technology wasn't enough and if religion wasn't enough, what hope does humanity have? But he said there was one ray of light that stood out in that compound, one, one, one little ray, and it was a man named Eric Little. 
And if that name rings a bell, it's because in 1924, Eric Little won a gold medal in the 400. That really wasn't his race. His race was the 100, but because it was on a Sunday and his faith did not allow him, it would be dishonoring the Sabbath, so he chose not to run and instead had to run a race he wasn't prepared to run, but won it anyway and won the gold. And they made a movie about his life called The Chariots of Fire. Eric Little was in that camp because after the Olympics, he became a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to China and when they rounded up all the Westerners they rounded him up and put him in that camp and he says, Gilkey says, everybody in that camp was out for themselves but Eric Little he says Eric Little's love of life was not darkened by the compound, he was always overflowing with humor and joy pouring himself out for others especially a group of teenagers that were imprisoned in the camp, he taught those kids chess Help them make model boats, organize square dances for them, even cook meals for them when he could find the supplies. Gilkey says they wouldn't have survived. None of them would have survived without him. Eric Little died right before that compound was liberated. But Gilkey said, I had to find out what made him different. And he set out on a search. This is what he wrote at the end of his book. And I quote from the book, religion is not the place where the problem of man's egotism is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Human pride may win the battle, and then religion can and does become one more instrument of human sin. But if there, the self does meet God in His grace, and so surrenders to something beyond its self-interest, then... The Christian faith can prove to be the needed and rare release from human self-concern. Eric Little, the one truly changed life in the Shangtung compound, his witness and testimony eventually led Langdon Guilty to become a Christ follower. Listen, if you make religion, you kind of think this thing is earned, it's not a gift, then your religion will make you as proud and selfish as everybody else. And you'll look down your nose at people in self-righteousness. But if you understand grace, it will not only humble you, it will fill you. And it will make you the kind of person they need in concentration camps. And the kind of person our world so desperately needs. A life truly changed and transformed by the sweetness of God's grace. And that's what happened to the woman at the well. I want you to stand with me all over this place today. We we didn't even get, we didn't even get to verse 27 and on is where you see the evidence of grace changing her life and what she does after that. And the Lord willing will pick up there next week. But in my heart of hearts, I believe somebody needs to step over the line of faith today and make Jesus the Lord of their life. You would be considered a spiritual seeker. I'm not inviting you to religion. I'm inviting you to Jesus. Religion can become one of the most sinful things in humanity when human pride takes over. But I'm asking you to come to the living water of grace. It'll change your life. It's a gift. Our prayer team will serve you. There are prayer stations out in the lobby today. And if you need prayer for any reason today, especially if you're that friend Jared was speaking about a moment ago and it's time for you to surrender, he can satisfy the longing of your heart today. Father, will you bless them and keep them? Will you make your face shine down upon them? Will you be gracious to them? Will you turn your countenance their direction? Will you grant us peace today, Lord, 
don't let us be a room full of more religious people, but a room full of genuinely changed and transformed people by the sweetness of God's grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.